From The Nation magazine, this is Start Making Sense, progressive news without the boring parts. I'm John Wiener. Today we'll be talking with Andrew Coburn of Harper's Magazine about Obama's drone war in the Mideast. And also, because politics isn't everything, because there are also movies, we'll talk about the great Hong Kong filmmaker Wong Kar Wai with John Powers. He's critic at large on Fresh Air with Terry Gross. First up, this week, of course, was the long-awaited California primary, the biggest and pretty much the last the end of the primary season, except, of course, for D.C. For comment and analysis, our senior producer, Alan Minsky, spoke with John Nichols. Of course, he's national affairs correspondent for The Nation and author of the new book, People Get Ready. So, John Nichols, the long and winding Democratic primary process is just about over. June 7th was the last big night with California the biggest prize of all in play. And just like the entire 2016 presidential election cycle, it unfolded unlike anything we had seen before with all sorts of unexpected plot twists. Your thoughts on the past few days of high drama? It was a pretty epic night. And we should pause for a moment and take in the history. Putting aside you know, where people stood as regards this race, which candidate they backed, through the whole process and in the, in the final stages. What happened on Tuesday night is that Hillary Clinton, the frontrunner for the Democratic nomination throughout the process, had a very good night. She won California, New Jersey, New Mexico, South Dakota. She did not win Montana and North Dakota, but overall she, A, had a lot of victories at the state level, B, piled up a lot of delegates, in combination with the superdelegates that have reportedly supported her, she was put in a position where she was able to claim the nomination in a very bold way at a big rally in Brooklyn. And that's a big deal because, of course, as she noted, and it was certainly central to the message of that rally in Brooklyn, this is the first time a woman has been in a position to claim the nomination of a major party in the United States of America. That's a historic moment. And the results of Tuesday night, because it was a good night for Clinton, gave her an ability or an opening to stake a strong claim there. So that made it both a historic night, but also one that that was perhaps a bit more definitional than people expected. By the same token, and it is important to note, Bernie Sanders was able to rally in California with a huge crowd of his supporters and to energetically deliver the message that he has delivered throughout this campaign, that this process is, of course, about candidates and about primaries and caucuses and and all the elements that are brought into standard horse race coverage, but it is also about a set of ideas. And those ideas continue to animate the process and play a real role in it. So what we saw was a clear victory, I think, for Clinton in a number of states. And yet, still a moment where Sanders, who has run so much stronger in this process, I think, than anyone, or at least any, anyone I talked to expected at the beginning, Sanders was able to claim an, at least a, an element of victory, or at least success, or at the very least, progress from a campaign that has gone on now since roughly a year ago, and that is not quite finished, that will go to the District of Columbia for a final vote, and that will have influence, as Clinton acknowledged, and Sanders also suggested, in a platform writing process and ultimately at a convention in Philadelphia, and finally in a fall campaign that will involve uh, Democrats struggling with the the challenges and, and all the issues that arise with Donald Trump's candidacy. I'm out here in California, and Bernie Sanders threw almost all of his energy and resources into this state in the lead-up to the June 7th primaries. He, of course, has to be very disappointed in the results. 
However, there are two mitigating circumstances. One is there are still an exceptional number of ballots that need to be counted. As there were a record number of provisional ballots cast, many hundreds of thousands, And it is anticipated that Sanders will do better among the voters who cast provisional ballots, but we won't know those results for a few weeks. The other thing that hung over the June 7th primary in California was that the Associated Press announced the night before the primary that Hillary Clinton had secured the Democratic nomination for the president and almost all other major media outlets followed suit immediately. This, of course, impacted how people viewed the election and almost certainly decreased voter turnout. John Nichols, What are your thoughts on the AP's announcement, and how irresponsible do you think it is for a media outlet to do something that so clearly could impact an election? Well, I think that the AP announcement was a very significant factor in this process, and it raises all the questions that come up when a media outlet makes a statement, you know, brings information out at a point where it really can potentially impact turnout sentiment, uh, you know, sense of where things are headed. And, you know, you can never fully measure that to complexity because, you know, it's hard to ascertain how many people just didn't go, just, you know, said, oh, well, it's, it's over, I'm not going to go vote. That can have an impact in both ways. It obviously could impact some Clinton folks who thought, oh, well, it's over, don't have to bother, can also seriously impact Sanders folks because they think, well, just not going to make it here. It raises a lot of questions. When you look at some of the results from around the country, I think it may provide an element of explanation for why it looks like, and as you well point out, there's going to be continued counting in California. So the figures may be a bit different. It could actually be a bit closer. But why Sanders did not do as well in California as a number of the polls suggested that he might. Also, perhaps, that loss in South Dakota, which was, I think, a bit of a surprise. And in general, you know, I think that Sanders folks will continue to question whether that AP announcement at that point really did have some impact. Clearly, Clinton had advantages. She had strengths going into this thing, and that is a reality. I had thought, you know, obviously, with how we deal with exit polling and, and have a little bit of caution on that because of the impact it might have. I had thought that there might be a bit more caution on a primary eve about what you declare and what you don't declare. Not only did the AP report impact the potential numbers in California, I also think the manner in which that influenced the day was something that was playing on Bernie Sanders when he spoke on Tuesday in Santa Monica. He was quite defiant. Your thoughts on where he goes from here? a very powerful speech in Santa Monica after the polls had closed in California, after the polls had closed in the other states. He had a good sense of where his position was at, what he had achieved, and what was possible. And he communicated that. At, at a certain point, he said in the speech that he's, he's pretty good at math, and so he obviously understood the steep challenge that is ahead of him. At the same time, the theme that kind of ran through that speech was a line, the struggle continues. And it went over very, very well with the crowd in the room. People were excited. They were very enthusiastic about what he was saying and how he was saying it. It was an issue-focused message, talking about what this campaign has stood for, where it has come, what it's tried to achieve. And I think that many national analysts will miss something about what Sanders was saying there. And that's a a failure on their part, and frankly, a failure, I think, throughout this campaign for a lot of folks to understand, you know, how Sanders has approached this and how his supporters have approached this. Sanders' message from the start of this campaign was that it was about a set of issues and about a, a framework for where the Democratic Party should be and where ultimately the politics of the United States should be, summed up by that phrase of a political revolution, that there really have to be some major changes But remember that Sanders has always outlined those changes, talking about a single-payer Medicare for all health care system, talking about a $15 wage, talking about a host of environmental initiatives, talking about a host of racial justice initiatives, immigrant rights initiatives, and talking even, although I I always thought I would like to have heard even more, about military and war and peace and regime change issues. 
So when Sanders says in a moment like that, the struggle continues, I think it's important to see it in the way that the candidate and many of his supporters do. And that is that many of them came into this campaign from movements, the labor movement, the environmental movement, economic justice movements, anti-war movements, anti-surveillance movements. And you you don't get stopped by a primary result. You don't get stopped by a caucus result or even a delegate count. That ultimately, when you're in a fight like this, it's not about one election, and it's certainly not about one personality. Sanders again and again on Tuesday night kept you know, saying things about how it wasn't about him. It was really about the crowd and about this broader set of ideals. That's an important way to understand this, because you know, my sense is that there are both immediate short-term as well as longer-term realities here, and they are political, to be sure. They have to do with what will happen at the Democratic National Convention, as well as in the fall campaign. They also, though, have to do with what will happen next year and in the years beyond that. Because remember that Bernie Sanders is not someone who has always won elections. He began as a third-party candidate. Uh, He was a mayor of the biggest city in Vermont, but then he also got beaten in races for the governorship of Vermont and in a House race. And then he finally got elected to Congress, and he's had a pretty successful career in the House and the Senate since then. But this is a guy who, when he's gotten beaten, he's turned around the next day and gone right back at it. When he's won, he's, you know, got up the next day and kind of gone right back at it. And I think that that's the way in which to understand this. For Sanders, in my view, his measures are not just traditional electoral measures. They are also, how do you change the debate? And how do you advance issues and ideals? How do you build out movements that ultimately will change, you know, not just political parties, but the politics of the nation and and the nation itself? So I thought that came through very well in the speech. I think it was quite well understood by a lot of the people in the room and by a lot of Sanders supporters around the country. Although, again, I think a lot of analysts put it in just the most narrow assessment of what does he mean? Is he going to go on and fight the District of Columbia primary in the coming days? Of course, he'll do that. But I think you're also talking about you know, something much bigger and much more ongoing. So the horse race is almost over, but the battle over ideas, policy, and vision continues. I think that's exactly right. That's the way to understand it. And, you know, I was very intrigued that this morning the uh, Wall Street Journal had a headline about Clinton's victory, and then it said, party shift left pulls candidate with it. And what a fascinating thing. That Here's the Wall Street Journal, a traditional paper read by a lot of business folks, literally the paper of Wall Street, saying this Democratic Party has moved to the left, and it has pulled its presumptive nominee to the left in a process that has gone on for the last year. I think that's a very big deal, something major has happened, and I think that what Sanders has sought to say and what he continues to say is that that process isn't done. It is not finished you know, on a certain day. It's important because the Democratic Party in the 1980s into the 1990s definitely moved away from many of its New Deal moorings. It became a more cautious party as regards a lot of economic issues and, frankly, a host of other issues. And what we've seen in the course of this campaign, I think driven by Sanders' candidacy, but more than that, driven by movements that existed before this campaign and that in some ways have been steered into it, there has been a movement to the left. And where that ends up will be decided not by a primary result, and frankly not even by you know, some particular platform fight, but ultimately by a sense of the center of gravity on a host of economic issues, on fundamental environmental issues, on fundamental social issues. You know, these fights, they don't end on a particular day. But what one hopes is that in that concept coming from the civil rights movement, that the arc of history is long, but it bends toward justice, that maybe we're in a moment where movements and candidacies are bending it toward justice. 
And if that is the case, then this is a particularly exciting time that may have less to do ultimately with Donald Trump and more to do with a set of ideals and values that are quite positive. John Nichols, Read Him in the Nation, thank you for joining us. It's a pleasure, my friend. Now it's time to talk about drone warfare, remote control assassination with Andrew Coburn. He's Washington editor of Harper's Magazine and the author most recently of Kill Chain, The Rise of the High-Tech Assassin. What is the Kill Chain? Well, it's the whole process you need, or, you know, one needs to, people need to go, go through when they're making, making an attack. It doesn't have to be a drone, but it's, uh, you know, it's the phrase that comes up very frequently in the sort of inside and all the sort of manuals and discussions inside about what you do in a drone attack. It's from deciding on a target, acquiring a target, you know, the, all, the, all the steps you go through down to actually firing the target and, you know, as the name suggests, killing the uh, people therein. Now, now I understand one of the requirements uh, of the higher-ups in the kill chain is they want an estimate of the number of civilians that will be killed in a drone strike or a drone-guided bombing. Uh, What are the rules about killing civilians for the kill chain? Well, it depends on on your rank. (laughs) The... uh, you know, there's a whole now is sort of, sort of almost a sort of rank, sort of official rank structure in the military, and I guess in the intelligence agencies too, of um, you know what, how many civilians you can say it's okay to kill on any in any particular instance. Uh, for example, in the um, 2003 invasion of Iraq, um, the uh, the um, the number was 30. I mean, up to up to th- up to 29, I guess. Um, if you were, you know, trying to kill Saddam Hussein, and you, you know, you heard he was in a particular building, and there seemed to be 25 people, other people. There was one case like this in a restaurant. Um, 25 other people in the re- in the in you know, that were going to be hit by the explosion. You could go ahead and do it. Uh, but if it looked like it was going to be 35, or you know, 30, then you had to kick that up the chain, and it actually went to Rumsfeld himself. And Rumsfeld could say yes or no whether you know, that was too many civilians to kill. I, I, I gather that I've been told that there actually were 50, about 50 such requests, <laughs> you know, to kill more than 30 people, more than 30 civilians, and in no case was it refused. In no now, case. In no sing, no case at all. Now, I mean, since then, um, you know, it goes up and down. For example, when. Um, General McChrystal was in charge in Afghanistan. I mean, he was very concerned about the blowback from, you know, killing civilians, and he sort of did appreciate that this this was making the U.S. particularly unpopular in, among the among the Afghan people. So he brought it down practically down to zero. I mean, you practically had to you know go to him. It was going to be more than one. I think it was one for a time. I'm not sure what it was. I, it's gone out of my head what the Islamic State, you know, the, the ISIS war, what the, what the number is there at the moment. But it's, uh, you know, it's, I think it's, I understand, I seem to remember it's less than 30. But yeah, so it's, you know, it's, it's all part of the equation, the number of people, you, number of civilians you can kill. Well, your book, Kill Chain, goes into the, the history of the idea of remote control assassination. And I was fascinated to see it all comes out of uh, Vietnam. Uh, the lessons of Vietnam were, were pretty clear. Presidents cannot send American troops to fight and die in faraway wars. Uh, LBJ was forced to withdraw from his own re-election campaign in 1968. And then his successor, Richard Nixon, had to resign in 1974 to avoid impeachment. The result was this dream. If you could fight a war by remote control with machines, if we could kill our enemies without losing our own ground forces so that no American would die, then we could win wars. We actually tried this in Vietnam, didn't we? We did. Well, we thought that we, thought we tried to win the war exactly by remote, a whole remote control operation, which was uh, something called Task Force Alpha. Well, it had various names, Operation Igloo White, and Task Force Alpha, um, which was basically... Um, the notion, you know, the big problem they decided was uh, 
the fact that the North Vietnamese could send reinforcements down to the south, down the Ho Chi Minh Trail. So they, a bunch of you know, scientists who uh, come out of the Manhattan Program, basically, uh, came up with this scheme that you could, if you, you could have remote sensors all across the jungle through which the Ho Chi Minh, Minh Trail ran, which would sense the enemy movements, you know, either by, by sound or by you know, ground movement uh, seismically or even by smell, the smell of urine, um, or by the spark of an engine ignition, and it would they would automatically radio these the, these signals, uh, this information back to a giant computer in Thailand, uh, which was the most advanced computer in the world at that time, which would then automatically sort of calculate you know what this was that this signified an enemy co- column, and then automatically send signals to bombers and indeed de- de- drones they tried for a while to go and attack this uh, this thing it was they thought it was just wonderful you know this is such high technology and, and so you know remote control you really didn't need to have grunts dying in the dying in the mud and it was a complete flop yeah as i recall we didn't win the war in vietnam <laughs> well we didn't win the war and even this effort didn't was a complete flop because it um the Vietnamese almost immediately figured out what was going on and took effort. They'd moved the sensors and they'd, you know, they'd run herds of buffalo up and down the trail to confuse the, to make them think it was a truck column and things like that. And it, it was a complete bust, cost billions and billions and billions of dollars, hugely profitable for the contractors, particularly IBM involved, and was, you know, militarily useless. Well, today we are told our drones are immensely accurate. There's never been anything like the accuracy of our drones in, in, in uh, spotting targets and guiding weapons so that we can uh, kill the leaders of our enemies without having, not only without losing our own soldiers, but without having to kill thousands and thousands of other, uh, of other people. But since they operate so far away, it's hard to know how, how often this promise of unprecedented accuracy is fulfilled. You have searched for real evidence about this, and I think the best evidence you found was from 2014, when uh, it's not when the United States came to the aid of those those Yazidis, the tens of thousands of of people who were trapped uh, in Iraq in this place, Mount Sinjar, surrounded by ISIS, and the United States sent drones to guide transport planes that were dropping supplies by parachute to to. That's right. How did how did that work out? <laughs> Very badly. Uh, the drone people boasted, um, the drone unit out at uh, Creech Air Force Base, boasted later how effective the drones would be in guiding these parachute drops to the thousands of, uh, you know, Yazidi refugees who were, you know, on this parched mountain, Mount Sinjar, besieged by the Islamic State. Um, and it, was, it sounded like a good PR move, except that, you know, uh, it was easy to talk to people who'd been on Mount Sinjar and uh, you know who who said what they all you know I talked to many people who'd been there and they all said what are you talking about we never saw a single parachute you know all the you know, the, the ones that we did see were landing you know way off in Islamic State ter- territory it was a it was a complete bust the you know it was it was one concrete example there were there are many su- such you know the um, as I say and this is you know the last section of my book for the paperback um, that the uh, you know the the, the war against ISIS or, you know, Daesh or whatever you want to call it, has been very, to a considerable extent, a drone war because it's either been, they've been using drones either to directly attack with their own missiles or to guide, to, you know, to, to basically to guide the bombs. It's called buddy lazing, to guide the bombs down yes. onto, the, onto the targets or, to, you know, to, to survey the targets in the first place. So it's been a drone war, and as, as we can see, it hasn't gone so well. A year ago, April 2015, the New York Times reported, quote, every independent investigation of the strikes has found far more civilian casualties than administration officials admit. That's the New York Times. Um, So let's concede that our drones kill uh, way too many civilians. But but don't they also succeed in killing a lot of the top people uh, fighting for our enemies, the, the famous high-value targets, and, and doesn't this cripple the ability of our enemies to, to hurt us? Well, rather worryingly, the administration or President Obama seems to believe this, but it's really not, 
it's not the case. Um, I can tell you for two, for two reasons. One is, you know, for they to give an example, they've been attacking um, Al Qaeda. You know, the Al Qaeda structure rooted or supposedly rooted in in the you know the frontier areas of Pakistan um, on the Afghan-Pakistani border. Uh, for years and years now, and they've, you know, they're regularly announcing yet another triumphant, you know, kill, where they've eliminated yet another. It was usually the number two. Yes, you know, yeah, another the, number two was the number two. There's so many number twos. Right, and it turned out actually there was an interesting sort of document that surfaced I found last year, where it was about the actually the sort of the bureaucracy, Al Qaeda bureaucracy in Pakistan. They have, and there was a they have questions about getting the payroll out, and they had a quite a lot of people on the payroll. They seem to be able to distribute money quite well. They even, people who behave badly, they want to punish. They even had a form of house arrest. You know, it was like, despite all this, there was still a very efficient-looking sort of structure that al-Qaeda had kept in place. And, in fact, recently they announced, well, we've, there's been evidence of that they, they reorganized around, um, you know, dealing with drone strikes. But the more important reason, which I go into a lot in the book, um, which is borne out, continually borne out by events, is that when you take out a high-value target, I, I apologize, I hate that phrase, take out, when you kill a high-value target, um, he's almost certainly immediately released, uh, sorry, immediately re- uh, replaced, and the new person, just as it seems to be, this always seems to be the case, turns out to be worse for you than the, than the guy you got rid of, uh, you, the U.S., um, so, I mean, there's, you know, innumerable examples of, uh, you know, in, in, in Afghanistan, in Pakistan, in, um, in Iraq, uh, and, I, you know, I suspect in the ISIS areas um, and in Somalia. It, it just doesn't work. And, in fact, it even doesn't work when it was applied in the drug war. The, the DEA had this big kingpin strategy to remove the kingpins of the drug cartels. And uh, the net effect was to increase the supply of drugs into this country. So if if you are right that remote control assassination, drone warfare, doesn't work, seems to me you're saying that only boots on the ground will will stop our enemies, but, but that would mean we wouldn't fight wars unless we absolutely had to, unless we had a political consensus that they were unavoidable. Is that yeah, right? Well, isn't that, isn't that a shocking? Um, that's obviously a too shocking a concept to uh, <laughs> to be entertained. I mean, the the problem is, I've got you know, people do notice after a bit that you know, fighting wars, you know, with the, this remote control dream, doesn't you know, doesn't work. You know, we, we, as you say, I mean, as I've been saying, you know, we've been at it for 15 years now, and you know, the the dreaded terror, I mean, the rightly dreaded terrorists are, uh, you know, seem to be as big a threat as ever. In fact, now much bigger because you know in 2001, Al-Qaeda was a bunch of people, not, you know, limited number, a couple of hundred maybe, people hiding in caves and in, you know, apartments in Karachi and whatever. And now, you know, ISIS, you know, just ISIS alone, and they're not the only ones, control, you know, a huge chunk of Iraq and Syria. And we're, you know, we're at war with them. You know, <laughs> shouldn't we have won this war a while back? We, you know, we're obviously not doing, we're doing something not right. Andrew Coburn, his book is Kill Chain, The Rise of the High-Tech Assassins. It's out now in paperback. Thank you, Andrew. Thank you. Now it's time for our regular feature, Politics Isn't Everything, There's Also Movies. We don't have to talk about Donald Trump all the time. We can also talk about Wong Kar Wai. And for that, we turn to John Powers. He's critic at large on Fresh Air with Terry Gross, where he has an audience of around 4 million listeners. He also writes about politics and film for Vogue and Vogue.com. Today, we want to talk about one of my favorite filmmakers. That's Wong Kar Wai. He's from Hong Kong. And since the 90s, he's won international acclaim and many awards, including Best Director at the 1997 Cannes Film Festival. John Powers has been talking to Wong Kar Wai about film for a long time, and at last they have done a book of their conversations about his films. It's called WKW, The Cinema of Wong Kar Wai. It's a lavish 
large format Rizzoli book that's completely gorgeous. John Powers, welcome back. Hi. I'm sure many of our listeners have seen Chungking Express or In the Mood for Love, two of his 10 films. But for those who haven't, you have a great description at the beginning of your book of his films. Please read. Okay. There are many good filmmakers in the world, but only a handful, including Jean-Luc Godard, David Lynch, Abbas Kiarostami, and Ho Shao Shen, possess a sensibility so strong that their name immediately conjures up a whole way of seeing. Wong Kar Wai belongs to that rarefied company. One can instantly recognize his films by their rootless heroes grappling with love and loneliness, their ticking clocks and restless bodies, their refracted fashion shoot surfaces and deep-seated melancholy, their warping of genres and blurring of the line between reality and dream. All this led Time's estimable Richard Corliss to Noyton Wong, the most romantic filmmaker in the world. Seemingly incapable of shooting an ugly frame, and as interested in female characters as he is in men, he may be the living filmmaker who best understands glamour. Well, maybe the best place to start is his movie Chunking Express, 1994, the one that made him a world-famous cult director. What do you think of Chunking Express? Oh, I, I love it. It, it. it was I got a crush on it when I first saw it, and I first met him in connection with it. The thing about Chunking Express is that it's perhaps the Hong Kong equivalent of a French New Wave film. It's a city film about young people looking for love. It's energetic, lively, at once bouncy, and at the same time kind of sad, because in the world of Wong Kar Wai, everybody's always lonely almost all the time. The plot, actually, there's two plots, two uh, love stories about sweet, sad young guys who, who are cops. They are called Cop 223 and Cop 663. Right away, we're far from Hollywood. Yes, we are. No, it, it, it is, you know, it's, I, I think partly because Hong Kong's relationship to cops is slightly different to ours. Um, and so the, and I think cops are like more like ordinary people in, in Hong Kong. And so they are sympathetic figures. One of them is extremely goofy, and he falls in love without quite knowing it with a drug dealer. That's one plot. The other one is a melancholy cop whose girlfriend dumps him, but, but a young woman who works behind the counter at a food stall who dances to the loud blaring um, strains of California Dreamin' falls for him and begins sneaking to his house and cleaning his apartment for him. And there's music. There's the jukebox. And everybody plays the same song on this jukebox. Let's talk about Wong Kar Wai's jukebox. Yes. Well, Wong Kar Wai is clearly of the generation for whom pop music is central to their experience of the world. Almost every one of his movies that's set in, in, in the modern period has a jukebox. And that's because he's constantly playing music. I mean, I think no, nobody has a more eclectic sense of music and a more excited sense of what music can do for you. I want to dwell for one more minute on Chunking Express because they're those awesome street scenes, which I, it's hard to imagine how he managed to shoot these. Yes, I think the, perhaps the most famous shots in Chunking Express are of two of the lovers, of the cop and a woman, standing on a street, and around them the world is, of people is moving by like rushing water. So they are a blur, but the people at the very center of it are standing and talking at, at normal speed. You could have, you can do that rather easily now using digital effects. But, you know, back in the early '90s, you couldn't. And so, what they did was they had the people walk by normally, and the actors move incredibly slowly, so that in fact the world around them was going quickly. While they, and when you played it normally, they were going normal speed, and everybody else was going quickly. At the time, some critics attacked that for being a gimmick shot. Mm. Yet, not only is it a beautiful shot. I think it captures the sense, I think, that that lovers have in the world, that they are the only people in it, and the rest of the world around them is a blur. They are the center of everything, and everything else really is just something flowing by that you don't care about. May I add one other thing? Because it, it, it's one of the ways that there's a, 
some social interest to Chungking Express, which which is that the two stories take place on the opposite sides of Hong Kong. One is day and one is night, and they are different sides of Hong Kong. The first part takes place in a place called Chungking Mansions, which is a f- which is one of the most famous buildings in Hong Kong because so many immigrants and immigrant businesses work there. So that when you walk into it, you see Pakistanis and Africans and Burmese and everything. It's just an incredible swirl. And I mean, there's in fact been an entire book written about it as, as being basically like the market at the center of the world. It's like the great globalization symbol of Hong Kong. Interestingly enough, Wong Kar Wai's father had managed a nightclub in that very in that very building when he was a kid. So it's a special personal thing to him. But when he went and shot there, what he loved was just the explosion of difference. I mean, that's what he, I mean, when I asked him uh, again when we went there, do you like it? He said, oh, he loves it because, <laughs> because there's just so much vitality. And I think the homogeneity of what Hong Kong can be is completely obliterated where suddenly people are from everywhere. We should also talk about everybody's favorite, In the Mood for Love, sort of a romantic melodrama of repressed, not quite lovers and Every inch of the screen in every shot is is gorgeous and of course there is music. Munyekita linda De cabellos de oro De dientes de pelas Labios de Ruby. We don't usually hear Nat King Cole singing in Spanish. In the mood for love, rainy alleys and sad, sad lovers. Sad lovers. I mean, the central figures are two neighbors who discover that not only are there, one is a man, one's a woman, that their husband, one's husband is having an affair, the other's wife's having an affair, but they're having an affair with each other. And they more or less circle around each other for a while, then gradually come together, and you don't know whether they themselves are going to become lovers or whether, partly horrified by what the other people are doing, they won't let themselves become lovers. So it's kind of a dance between the two of them as they move closer, and you, the audience is really rooting for them to get together. Most of it is done with style. You know, the M- M- Maggie Chung character who plays the lead woman wears some of the most beautiful outfits imaginable. I mean, I, 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 can, I, can, I can tell you that at Vogue, I mean, one of the things when you work at Vogue and people are saying, those are the most beautiful costumes you've ever seen, you realize those people even know, that's a professional <laughs> judgment. You know, that they, that, and they're just astonishingly beautiful. And part of what's inter- interesting in it is these, he, the man is beautifully besuited. She's wearing be- beautiful chongsam. And they're in these grubby streets. And, but that's because their sense of themselves and their, of, of how they want to be in the world is this clean, immaculate, well-tailored thing, even if the world around them is not. So it's an expression of themselves that they dress that well, even when just going out to get noodles. I'm glad you mentioned the noodles because the noodle shop is an important part of this movie. And, and indeed, different food spots and different cuisines are an important part of a lot of Wong Kar Wai's movies. Well, 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 food is hugely important in Chinese culture to begin with. And it's hugely important as a social thing. You know, that f- for him, it matters if you're eating alone, that says something. You know, and each meal has a, spe- a, a special meaning. Um, so that if you're, as I'm Wong Kar Wai once discussed and broke it down for me, you know, that if you're having breakfast, it means nothing. You're having lunch, you're probably, it's probably more intimate. If To have dinner with somebody means something even, even larger than that. The kind of place you go tells you something about the intimacy of the relationship. What you're eating does that. In In the Mood for Love, what they're eating is also carefully chosen to be seasonally correct, even though as Western watchers of the film, you'd have no idea. But he made out a menu of, of all the things because the people from Shanghai, the Shanghainese characters in this, would all know when you mention a certain kind of dumpling, oh, that means it's June. <laughs> uh, and let's talk about his uh, unhappy gay love story, Happy Together, the film won, won him Best Director at Cannes. 
It starts with an amazingly explicit sex scene between two men, and after they have sex, they go to Iguazu Falls in Argentina, <laughs> yes. and somehow this seems okay. It does, yeah. And 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 what's even more amazing is that it's conceived of as a film about China taking over Hong Kong. <laughs> but but you no. Know, but but what's interesting about the ex- rather explicit sex scene is that this was the mid '90s, and the equivalent would have been at that point Tom Cruise and. George Clooney say stripping down and getting in where it's you know where where it's clear that Cruiser Clooney is actually entering the other person. I mean, Brokeback Mountain was many years after this, and it was considered daring. In Hong Kong, this would have been even more daring because gay things were, were more taboo. You know, personally for Wong Kar Wai, it didn't feel daring when I tried to say it seems kind of brave to do that. He, he was he was saying no, but everybody had you know everybody had gay friends you know come on it's, and he said it's, it's it's a movie world everybody knows gay people it wasn't a big deal, and that for him, it's not a gay story except that the people are gay. At one point, he shot a thirty-minute extra thing where one of the where one of the guys gets involved with a woman for a while. I've seen it. It's on. It's even on the DVD, and it's really great. It's good stuff, but he cut it out because he didn't want it to be a, the film to be about choosing sexual preference or gender. What he wanted it to be about was these two guys. And the moment you, a woman enters and there's a, some sort of brief romantic thing, it becomes an issue movie. And he doesn't do issues. He does, he does romance and longing and mood and poetry. And you say this story of the unhappy gay lovers is is an allegory it's of okay. mainland China taking over Hong Kong. Well, it's a we- it's a weird allegory, you know. It's but it starts off with the passports, and the passports were very symbolic at this point in Hong Kong. This was before the Chinese takeover, because there was stamped on them. Basically, it said you were a member of the British Empire, but you couldn't. You couldn't just move to England, say. You were like a member of the British Empire, but that didn't give you all the privileges of of being British. So the question is, what would you do? These people go to the far ends of the world in in Argentina. They eventually wind up back. But but the story is the story about this this mismatched pair of lovers, one of whom is saying, let's begin again. You know, know, the, the, the more alluring one saying, let's begin again. So it's an indirect and very oblique allegory about it. Um, and it's not even not even quite an allegory. But, but Wong Kar Wai says that history is kind of like the waterfall at Iguazu Falls, which is on the one, it's just this powerful force drawing everything in. And at some points it looks really beautiful. And at other points it's dark and frightening. But the point is you're not going to stop it. Mm-hmm. And, and, and it's clear that's what China's takeover of Hong Kong was like that waterfall. Wow. So what was it like for you, an American guy, to write a book with a filmmaker from Hong Kong, one of the world's greats, seems to me like a daunting challenge, even though I know he asked you to do the book with him. Yeah, he did. But I mean, I'd known him for a long time. It was the daunting thing is that he's, you know, I mean, I joke in the book that he's the Usain Bolt of delay (laughs) because you cannot put things off more efficiently than he does. The, the first time I went to see him, I went to, I flew to Hong Kong for five days to do interviews, and we didn't do our first interview till the night of the fifth day. Oh. He, puts, he puts things off. But as a person, he's gracious and warm, fun to be with, likes to joke around, seems more like a regular person. Isn't, you know, even though he's famously hip, he isn't hip. You know, I mean, he became an icon of hip, but the way a lot of people who seem that way, you know, he doesn't particularly like hip things. He's a family man. He's been married for almost 40 years. He doesn't chase women. He doesn't, you know, he doesn't do drugs. He he, he puts, he wears sunglasses famously, but that's about as outrageous as he actually gets. A, a friend of mine um, had said, you know, basically, I hope you don't hate him at the <laughs> when, when you're done. And I didn't. You know, I mean, most of my friends who've worked with filmmakers on big projects have wound up being really unhappy with them because there's something in the nature of the film directing mentality and the skill set that usually makes you a difficult control freak. You're, you're, there's a hint of that psychopathy that you get in people who want to run for president. The people who want to control entire worlds and make everything fit their vision. And, you know, if you're part of that, you realize very quickly that you're just on the fringes. If you, if you, try, to, if you try to move the things too much, 
you're sung. I remember writing years ago that Bill Clinton had the time sense of a drug lord. <laughs> you know, he would just kind of show up. You know, well, Wonkar Wai is, is, is sort of the same way. There's, they turn up within a couple hours of when they say they're going to, and then everything coalesces around them. But all the people around them have been there for years and know that's how it works. The book is WKW, The Cinema of Wong Kar Wai. The author is John Powers. John, thanks for coming in today. Well, thank you for having me, John. Start Making Sense, The Nation podcast, is co-produced by the LA Review of Books. Our senior producer at Start Making Sense is Alan Minsky. Our executive producer is Frank Reynolds. Our recording engineer is Ernesto Orellano. Our engagement editor is Annie Shields. Katrina Vanden is editor and publisher of The Nation. Our theme music is from Barcelona Afrobeat, licensed by Creative Commons. Find out more about Start Making Sense at thenation.com and subscribe to Start Making Sense wherever you get your podcasts at Stitcher, SoundCloud, or iTunes. I'm John Wiener. Thanks for listening.
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. It's lunchtime at Tim Hortons, and we're serving up a special deal just for you. Our new $5.99 lunch deal includes your choice of any lunch sandwich and a side of crunchy kettle chips. Because what's lunch without a little crunch? And the sandwich choice is all yours. Like a ham and Swiss, Chipotle chicken wrap, BLT, and more. Made to order just the way you like it. Tim Hortons' new lunch deal. Simple, delicious, and just $5.99. Now that's a good deal. Only at your neighborhood Tim's. U.S. only. Price and participation vary. Terms apply.